Hi, this is Dr. Sarah Gottfried, and today we'll be mapping estrogen regulation on the 15-minute matrix. Welcome to the 15-Minute Matrix. I'm Andrea Nakayama, functional medicine nutritionist and your host. This is the podcast that brings you bite-sized insights and lessons on the clinical relevance of the functional nutrition matrix, the most important tool in functional medicine and functional nutrition. The matrix is so important, not only because it invites us to really stop and assess, but also because it reminds us of three very important factors in our care, recommendations, and outcomes. Everything is connected, we are all unique, and all things matter. Be sure to head over to this episode's show notes at 15minutematrix.com if you'd like to see today's topic mapped on a downloadable matrix to remind you of these critical aspects of care. Today on the 15-Minute Matrix, I'll be speaking with Dr. Sarah Gottfried. Sarah Gottfried, MD, is a board-certified gynecologist and physician scientist. Over the past two decades, Dr. Gottfried has seen more than 25,000 patients and specializes in identifying the underlying cause of her patients' conditions to achieve true and lasting health transformations, not just symptom management. She is more likely to test her patients' DNA and next-generation biomarkers and then prescribe a personalized lifestyle protocol using primarily food, not drugs, plus other proven interventions to optimize the gene-environment interface. For each patient, she designs an N-of-one trial to provide rapid information on whether the personalized prevention plan will improve outcomes. It's not one method fits all. It's not disease-centered. It's not fix them up and send them home. It's a mission to transform healthcare one patient at a time, which is why I like Dr. Sarah Gottfried's work so very much. Dr. Gottfried is a global keynote speaker who practices evidence-based integrative precision and functional medicine. She's clinical assistant professor in the Department of Integrative Medicine and Nutritional Sciences at Sydney Kimmel Medical College, Thomas Jefferson University, and director of precision medicine at the Marcus Institute of Integrative Health. Her three New York Times best-selling books include The Hormone Cure, The Hormone Reset Diet, and Younger. Her next book, titled Women, Food, and Hormones, will be released in fall of 2021, and we here at the Functional Nutrition Alliance cannot wait to read more from Dr. Gottfried. Dr. Gottfried, what a treat to have you join us on the 15-Minute Matrix. Welcome. Thank you. So happy to be here. I love that we are talking about estrogen metabolism and not just estrogen. Can you speak into why estrogen metabolism? Yeah, you know, I think a lot of people get focused on estrogen levels. And I want to look much more broadly at what's happening with estrogen in the body. So metabolism picks up the other functions of estrogen, mm -hmm. especially some of those drivers that we learn about 
in functional medicine, production, transport, sensitivity, and detoxification. So we need to have this bigger view. I love that bigger view and that it really brings us into the body. We're not taking the hormone outside of the body. If we start with the realm of the antecedents, where are estrogens made and how should we be thinking about them? You know, estrogens are made in a lot of different places. A lot of people think it's the ovary, it's the corpus luteum, it's the placenta where it's made. But the truth is, that's more classic endocrinology. And increasingly, we're learning that there's other parts of the body that can make estrogen. So that includes the liver, heart, skin, kidney, fat tissue, brain. Brain is super important. Bone. And in men, men also need estrogen. It's made in the testes. We're talking about different kinds of estrogen. So we keep saying estrogens. Can you speak a little bit to those different estrogens? I I think we also have these ideas that some are good, some are bad. Are we being too limited in our thinking there? I think we have to be careful not to be overly reductionistic when it comes to the members of the estrogen family. So as you described, there's a lot of different members of this family. There's some that are better behaving than others. And the one that I tend to focus on is estradiol. So estradiol is the most abundant estrogen for women, especially premenopausally, but after menopause as well. That's when estrone E1 becomes more dominant. Mm-hmm. And there's another, there's a third type of estrogen called estriol, which is primarily made in pregnancy. So we want to consider this whole entire family and also the the conversion that happens between these different parts of the family. That's something I was thinking about too, just in terms of the notion of metabolism. There's some metabolic conversion between these different estrogens, right? That's right. There's some funny names for this. So one of the names that exists when you look at initial synthesis of estradiol, estradiol is not just the most abundant, it's also the most potent estrogen that we have. And it's converted from testosterone. So testosterone uses the enzyme aromatase to synthesize estradiol. And this is peripherally, whereas in the ovary, you make estradiol directly. And then this can be converted into estrone that can go bidirectionally between estradiol and estrone. It can also be converted to estriol. So important to think about all those conversions. And I think one of the things you do so beautifully is really show us all the different ways in which the body can impact that estrogen metabolism, but also in which estrogen in the body can also conversely impact how the body functions. Can we look at some of the triggers in a person's body that would impact their estrogen metabolism? So we've got these three main estrogens that we've talked about, the E1, E2, E3, estradiol, which has the DI in it, is E2. These also convert to other metabolites. So for instance, estrone converts to 2-hydroxyestrone, 4-hydroxyestrone, and 16-hydroxyestrone. And There's a number of different nutritional factors that we want to consider that can impact estrogen metabolism. And the ones that I think are the most important to know about, at least at the beginning, include alcohol and fiber. Hmm. So fiber is really essential for promoting 
healthy balance with estrogen metabolism. We know that vegetarians and vegans, for instance, tend to have lower estradiol levels, and this is related to how much estradiol they excrete. So in terms of triggering events, what I certainly see in my patients are too much alcohol consumption. We know that more than three servings per week is associated with a greater risk of breast cancer, three or more. We know that fiber intake is so important for the estrobilome, which is that subset of estrogen metabolizing bacterial genes that exist in the gut and regulate estrogen levels. And then another factor that many folks don't consider so much is disordered eating. Hmm. I see this a lot in my practice, probably because I have a history of disordered eating. I think a lot about it and want to help people who suffer from it. We know that food restriction especially can cause problems downstream with estrogen metabolism in part through the luteinizing hormone signal from the brain. So if you restrict calories, and I don't have the number off the top of my head for exactly how much you restrict it, but for an average sized woman, somewhere between about 1200 to 1400 kilocalories per day, if you restrict less than your threshold, that can lead to suppression of the luteinizing hormone surge and that can block ovulation and lead to problems with estrogen metabolism. I think it's so important that you brought up disordered eating in our generation. I believe we're the same age, Sarah, that we are seeing so many people with disordered eating and it's kind of taken a new turn. It may not be about body image in the same way. It may be about these specialty or quote unquote healing diets. Are you seeing people come in, women coming in who are inducing estrogen dysregulation through major food restriction, category food restriction, even the trends of ketogenic dieting, not to say it's good or bad, but it has its place, right? If we look through an N1 perspective, even intermittent fasting, when not used appropriately, I feel like these can contribute to disordered eating. And I'm wondering how they contribute to hormone function? That's such a good question, Andrea. I feel like there's so much to unpack in that that question you just asked. So yes, I see this so much. And let me just take a maybe step-by-step. What I see very commonly is orthorexia, where people become obsessed with healthy eating, but in an unhealthy way. So their relationship to food, to portions becomes disordered and doesn't serve them. The other thing that I see a lot is people that I fondly call my keto refugees. And these are folks who go on a ketogenic diet that usually is not well formulated. I think there's ways to formulate a ketogenic diet that's better for the microbiome and better for function. But I really think of keto as a a four-week therapeutic pulse. Mm unless you have epilepsy or Alzheimer's disease. So I'm really careful about therapeutic pulses because I I think they can lead to micro macronutrient issues further down the road when they're used in the long term. So I agree with you. I think that N of one framework is a really helpful way to think about this. The other issue that I see, you know, especially with women who are on a ketogenic diet, because there's so much satiety with the amount of fat that they're eating, often they're not getting the nutrients and the calories that they need. 
And so that's where you can, as an example, lose that luteinizing hormone pulse and lose ovulation. In fact, the studies aren't great because the majority of data that we have on the ketogenic diet is in men. But in the studies that have been done with adolescents and with younger people with epilepsy, what they found on the ketogenic diet is that girls and women have about a 45% rate of dysregulation of menses. So I think that tends to be related to the LH surge. That's what we're hypothesizing right now. So many clinical pearls in there and a lot for us to digest, so to speak. I'm going to ask you about three of my trios and how they might impact estrogen metabolism or how you'd think about them. The first one is related to what we think of as the three-legged stool. I call it the three roots, and it's the genes, digestion, and inflammation. When thinking about estrogen metabolism, how are you thinking about that trifecta? In terms of genes, this in some ways takes us back to antecedents. Mm -hmm. I think the important piece here genetically is the genes that are involved in detoxification as well as other parts of estrogen metabolism. So from a genetic perspective, I think about the genes that are involved in phase one detox as well as phase two detox. And we could maybe list those on the matrix. There's also, you know, if you think a little further out from the realm of metabolism, there's also genes that modulate the vitamin D receptor mm. and genes that involve blood clotting. And what I do with my patients, just to make this really clinically relevant, I run a panel looking at most of the genes that are related to estrogen metabolism and some of these other effects before I start someone, for instance, on estrogen therapy. Hmm. So I think genes are a really important piece here. And then digestion, would you be thinking about that? Yes. Oh, definitely. And I, I didn't always, you know, I've been an OBGYN for about 25 years. And when I first started practicing functional medicine, in some ways, I just, I guess we didn't know enough about dysbiosis and how important the microbiome is for regulation mm -hmm. of estrogen levels. So a lot of this is relatively recent in the past five to 10 years, but we now know that dysbiosis of the estrobilome can really affect the risk of estrogen sensitive cancers, including breasts, prostate, and endometrial. We know that the main mechanism is that dysbiosis can raise beta-glucuronidase, which is the enzyme that takes off the glucuride molecule, leaving estrogen to keep recirculating in the enterohepatic system, which I fondly refer to as bad karma. Like you, <laughs> you want to use estrogen, then you want to get rid of it. You don't want it to keep circulating. And there are certain things that can help you with that, that can help you with excretion. So having insufficient prebiotic fiber so that you're feeding the good bugs and also having a regular bowel movement, which I define as every day and you feel like you've completely evacuated. We know that calcium deglucreate, for example, can help with this process. And you want to correct dysbiosis. And then inflammation. How is the inflammatory milieu impacting our estrogen regulation? Yeah, so this is a super interesting topic because we've learned a fair amount with COVID-19 about the role of estradiol. You know, one of the things that we noticed early on from the, the data from China and then Europe and now in the U.S. is that 
men are hospitalized, have much more severe disease, and die at higher rates than we see in women. And it's significant. It's about a two to threefold increased risk. And so that's gotten us to really look at the role of estrogen, in this case, estradiol again, in immune function. We know that when you have a balanced level of estradiol, it suppresses pro-inflammatory cytokines like interleukin-6, TNF-alpha. We also know that high physiologic levels of estradiol help stimulate the T helper cell production. It also, estradiol can help with B cell production of antibodies. So there's this very beneficial effect on the immune system. Now, unfortunately, that can start to work against you because women, for instance, respond much more strongly to vaccines than men do. And this can lead to a greater risk of autoimmunity. We know that women have much higher right. rates, of course, of autoimmune disease compared to men. You spoke into one of the other trifectas I want to speak into, or one of the other aspects of the trifecta. And I know there's so much we can talk about with estrogen metabolism, and you've been so kind to fill out the matrix for us, and it's very in-depth. So I want to make sure everybody knows to go over to the show notes and get this downloadable matrix. But the other trifecta I wanted to ask you to speak into is what I call baseline trifecta factor for really being able to manage any health state, and that's poop, sleep, and blood sugar regulation. How do these <laughs> three things impact our estrogen metabolism? Yeah, well, this is so important. You know, I, what I find with a lot of patients who have estrogen dominance is that they're not pooping regularly. Right. So that's one of the first things that I think we have to work on, you know, to make sure that you're pooping out that estrogen, that you're not developing dysestrogenism just because you are constipated. So I think pooping is incredibly important. I think it's also a measure of gut function that we want to be tracking. Mm -hmm. When it comes to sleep, we know that poor sleep can increase cortisol the next day. It can increase insulin. It can lead to metabolic effects such as metabolic inflexibility. This as far as I know, doesn't have direct effects on estradiol levels, but it's important to realize that this is a network. It's a systems biology network. And when you have alterations in kind of the normal homeostasis of cortisol or in the normal homeostasis of insulin, it can lead to problems with estrogen. And we can get into those details if you'd like. And then your last one, was it blood sugar? Blood sugar, yeah, it's at the base, right? Like if we're looking at hormones. Well, blood sugar is maybe my favorite topic of all. <laughs> <laughs> I just think that, you know, definitely what I've noticed in my clinical practice is that so many people have problems with glucose homeostasis and they don't know it. So if you just look at prediabetes, you know, kind of the mainstream definition of prediabetes, only 10 to 12% of people who have it know it. And I think this certainly can play a role with estrogen. We know from decades of data that estrogen is an insulin sensitizer. So it has a salutary effect on blood sugar regulation. We also know that when women go through perimenopause, and I like to think of perimenopause in a couple of different phases. There's this first phase where you drop your progesterone, you're starting to run out of ripe eggs, you don't have the same level of progesterone you used to have. 
And then there's a second phase, which is where estradiol levels start to decline. Yep. And in that second half of perimenopause, that's where we start to see changes in body composition, which I think are related to insulin and this modulation that occurs, you know, kind of this crosstalk between insulin and estrogen. So what happens is that women start to deposit more fat. This is not something that any of us usually welcome. Um, <laughs> and it, it leads to increased visceral fat. You know, in general, women have this, this better distribution of fat compared to men until they go through menopause. So they have increased visceral fat and they start to have more insulin resistance. Sarah, I know we only are scratching the surface and you clearly can talk so much more about this topic. If you were to speak to us about the one thing you really wish that more coaches and clinicians were thinking about when it comes to estrogen and estrogen regulation, what would that be? (laughs) I've got a first place tie. Can I give two things? You can. <laughs> okay. You can absolutely give two things. Well, I, th- I think first of all, and this is good for job security, in mainstream medicine, there's this total disconnect where clinicians don't realize the importance of nutrition to modulating estrogen. And I, I think this is such an important factor. You know, I, I get criticized for this a fair amount in mainstream circles. And yet, you know, all you have to do is show them the data, right? you know, the effect of fiber, the effect of dysbiosis, the effect of uh, modulating prebiotics. All of these things have a pretty dramatic effect on estrogen levels. Same thing with alcohol. Yep. So I think that's a really important piece that nutrition plays such an important role. Now, if you have a postmenopausal woman who's having intrusive vasomotor symptoms, it's not like, you know, giving her 10 grams extra fiber is going to change everything. There's a time and a place for using estrogen therapy and nutrition will take you to a place where you may need the lower dose and it may be, you know, a shorter duration. Right. So I think it's important to to realize that nutrition can really meet you in the middle. Thank you for saying that. (laughs) Yeah, of course. Of course. It's not prompted. I think this is really important. And then the second point I want to make is that I see a lot of folks using questionnaires, for instance, to to estimate estrogen levels in their patients. And I think we need a deeper, broader perspective. Mm -hmm. It's pretty simple to measure estrogen metabolism. I like to do it in the dried urine. I used to Mm -hmm. do it in 24-hour urine. But I just would really encourage our listeners to start getting familiar with estrogen metabolism because there's so much you can do with nutritional modulation to get your patients to make more of those benevolent forms of estrogen and fewer of those Homer Simpson metabolites. Mm, I love that. Thank you so much, Sarah, for joining us today and sharing so much of your wisdom, really tons of clinical pearls and great biochemistry for us to sink our teeth into. My pleasure. Thank you. The 15-Minute Matrix is brought to you by me, Andrea Nakayama, and the Functional Nutrition Alliance. Check out the latest in functional nutrition at functionalnutritionlab.com forward slash blog. 
The 15-Minute Matrix is produced, mixed, and edited by Rowan Bradley with production support from Natalie Merrill and the team at the Functional Nutrition Alliance. You can find episodes on all kinds of topics with more incredible guests at our podcast website, 15minutematrix.com. And if you'd like to be notified by email each week about our podcast releases, head over to 15minutematrix.com forward slash notify. Also, please feel free to get in touch with us. We'd love to hear your thoughts, your feedback, and who you'd like to hear next on the podcast. You can email us at ask at 15minutematrix.com.